everyone. How are you doing today? Um, I'm doing good. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I just said that because that's what you always say, but it's been kind of a hectic day. It started with, um, I had, I got a meeting scheduled yesterday for some clients that needed to do personal guarantee for some real estate transaction and they required color copies of the ID, this mortgage provider requires color copies. I only have a black and white printer. Um, and so I figured, and I don't have a flatbed scanner either. And so I figured, I guess it's time. So the day started with, um, Esther going to get a printer. It wasn't me. I came to work, but she bought a printer from Staples, dropped like a thousand bucks on this printer and extra toner <laughs> for this one small meeting. And, um, but good news, the flatbed scanner slash color copier works very well and it did its job that it was needed to do. Excellent. Well, congratulations. That's good. Yeah. Big new piece of office equipment added to big, the office. Big news, big news over there. Yeah. I'm, I'm a bit amazed that they would require a physical like color copy of an ID. Why can't you take a picture and send it to them encrypted or something like that? Yeah. Good question, Kim. <laughs> so many rules. <laughs> I mean, it, it may be possible. I wasn't running the real estate transaction. And so I just, the instructions I received from the other law firm was that's what they wanted. So mm -hmm. I will comply. It is handy having a color printer and having a flatbed scanner. So I knew I wanted it. I just put it off for a couple of years and mm. it's time. Yeah. There are occasional times that you need those things, aren't there? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we should do the intros. I'm your host, Heather Malarek of Merrick Law. Uh, I'm joined today by Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Evan, you're our guest today too, which is really exciting. Um, and we also have our special guest, Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim's a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. How are you, Kim? Oh, I'm doing great. Um, we're riding the high uh, for for people tuning in today. This is the episode just after our very first Access to Justice Christmas party. And uh, lots of people came out. Uh, I'm curious to hear what you guys thought about it, but it, it seemed like there was just an amazing group of professionals who came out and um, celebrated their uh their time that they donated to our podcast last year. And, and uh, yeah, this is a whole pile of fun, which is nice to see people. I thought it was a really grand time. I had a lot of fun and a lot of great conversations. I've discovered that Ms. McDonald is, in addition to her many other credentials, is, the ho is a hostess a hostess with the mostest. <laughs> In addition to taking care of the catering, she also made her own appetizers, set up a variety of drink stations. It was a decorations, music. I mean, it was very impressive. And um, Evan also premiered our trailer and um, it was incredible and very fun. And hopefully listeners can check that out soon on the website or on the socials somewhere along the way. 
yeah, and, thank, I, and thanks to Raymond James for hosting as well. That was very lovely and uh, kind and generous. Yeah, it was. And um, the thing is, it's not just that Kim prepared some appetizers. She prepared the best appetizer there, <laughs> like hands down. It was a standout. Yeah. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, Oh, this is really good. Like, I think it was one of the first things I ate. I'm like, Oh, this looks okay. And then I ate it and I was like, Oh my gosh. <laughs> you, guys are, you guys are being kind. It's not hard to, to do appetizers better than like a, a mass catering company. <laughs> Isn't it? I think, I think all of us could prepare better appetizers than, than a catering company that provides like a massive amount of appetizers to you. What I'm hearing is your bar is pretty high <laughs> that you expect yourself to hit. And so it's like nothing for you, but for us putting the things in our mouths, it was like, yeah, that's nice. Yeah. I thought it was objectively good, not just good in comparison with other things. It was delicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe we need to start posting recipes. Um, I love cooking and eating. So for those who are really dying of curiosity, what was it like a broiled pancetta? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you exactly what it was very okay. quickly. So mm -hmm. you go to the Italian center for all ingredients. First, go to the meat counter, request uh, the uh, circular uh, round of pancetta sliced, not too thin, but, but thin enough that you can, it almost looks like a cracker. And then you, you put that in the oven and crisp it all up till it, it gets kind of hard like a cracker. The, the second item you need to acquire at the Italian center is in the uh, dried goods section. You're going to look for dried figs. You're going to pour Sambuca all over them and have them marinate overnight so they soften up. And then the other two items are goat cheese and uh, thyme. So essentially you just have the pancetta that's already been crisped up pop some goat cheese or smear it all on there, chop up some of your figs, sprinkle them on and a little bit of thyme on top. And it turns out absolutely delicious. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really amazing. I, it was really amazing. Pancetta is like a bacony ham kind of product, right? Yeah, it's definitely a pork product and it's mm -hmm. taken from the same place as a bacon, which is the belly. It's just mm. thicker cut. And I, like, I don't know if that was thick enough for me to call it pancetta or pancetta or whatever they say it, but, uh, Kim just told us what it was. So like, that's what you asked for at the Italian center to get it, but it was more, it was, it was not that thick. So, cause when I think pancetta, I'm thinking like something that's like uh, an inch and a half thick, mm. but these were like small, these were thin, these were like thick bacon. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah, you just want them thick enough so they don't like the constitution stays intact when you put a couple things on top, but otherwise they should be fairly thin. Mm. You can request about 15 slices uh, for your sheet pan and uh, you should be good to go. Yeah. I got to love an appetizer where you only have to go to one store too. Cause that's, that's a thing sometimes when you're going to three or four different places for ingredients, nobody wants to do that. No, I don't. 
All right, folks, I am excited to pick Evan's brain today in this area of law because I don't know anything about it, really. I feel like it maybe has to do with contracts a little bit, but I don't even know if that's the case. Evan, I think we're going to talk to you today about entertainment law. Is that right? That is correct. Does it have anything to do with contracts? (laughs) Yeah, we're going to. Yes, of course. There are definitely contracts in the entertainment law industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what we're going to focus on today is more just um, kind of one of the common questions that I get a lot from people that are looking for this type of advice, which isn't that much here in Edmonton, but... Hopefully they can find this and then they don't even need to call me and ask because we're going to do it right now, which is like, okay, I wrote a song or I recorded a song and um, now I'm worried about my rights, protecting my rights to that piece of intellectual property. And in Canada, we have very specific rules about um, that the bundle of rights that go along with that type of intellectual property. So instead of using kind of abstract terms like intellectual property to like make myself feel smart. um, If you write a song um, or if you record a song or if you're, you're playing an instrument in a song that gets recorded, you can have the right to be, paid money if people use that recording or if people use that song. And so I want to kind of demystify that as best I can. I hope I don't, I hope I'm able to do that and make it sound relatively simple and straightforward. Okay. Because it's pretty confusing. Um, it can be pretty confusing. So, well, yeah, I'm imagining first of all, like property rights. Uh, I'm imagining it owning a house or a baseball bat or um, (laughs) any sort of object, right? Something that's tangible, but they use it intellectual property. So I'm assuming this is, there's some overlap there that you can own something that's not tangible, but this is a whole other class of, things to own is that right yeah and i'm really mad at myself right now because i know that i just like when i told you hey let's do this topic i had just finished researching all this and getting it all straight and writing it down somewhere and uh i don't know where i wrote it down what i wrote it down for what i was producing to do this because i can't think of a file where i do this but it was recently so um uh, yeah, so I've got it relatively straight in my mind, but it's so confusing. Like, let me put it into context for you. I, I am interested in this space and I've written music. And so I've been aware of this, that of these issues and been like researching it and, and stuff for a number of years. And I also took a class in law school called Musicians and the Law that also went into details. And I'm telling you, it is confusing that I always forget exactly how it is. And I always have to like look it up to try and get it all straight because it's crazy. So is this the Copyright Act that people should be looking up if they're starting to investigate this? Where's the first stop on the knowledge train? 
right here. This is the first stop. <laughs> What's the second stop? <laughs> <laughs> there are a few good places out there that I've found. Um, so CD baby publishes some, some good stuff. They're generally American, but, um, it's still relatively helpful. Um, and I found another website when I was, you know, I don't even like, maybe I dreamed that this happened because I seriously cannot nail down what exactly I was doing, but I found a really good website that really did a pretty good job of breaking it down. Um, and I will try to find it so that we could include that among things to include in our show notes here for people so they can go and click and find out. When I was doing my research for this episode, I stumbled upon a website from a lawyer out East. Uh, his website was themusiclawyer.ca, and he talked about what I thought was kind of interesting. I thought this was going to be an uninteresting episode, but his history was interesting on the evolution of copyright or IP law in the music industry. And it started out with regards to publishing books and the everybody was an author and trying to protect their books from being printed multiple times and not getting credit for it. So uh, today it sounds like music law also refers to authors because they haven't really updated the laws for the music industry. And it still dates back to when this, these laws were created for books. Uh, I thought that was really, really interesting. And, and then it kind of evolved to protecting sheet music. And then as the music industry evolved to uh, recordings and um, publishing and songwriting and all this stuff, I just thought like, wow, like they really need to advance this area because there's so much evolution that's been happening. Oh my gosh. You know what? I just remembered, <laughs> I just remembered what it was for. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny because, uh, now I'm going to reveal myself a little bit. I found the website that I was looking at when I was doing this and what I was doing was writing a webpage for the Kahane law office website. So I'm not going to reveal myself. I will provide the link to that webpage when we publish it. And by the time this gets published, we'll have that, that webpage. So you'll be able to link to that and kind of go through Okay, good. I'm so glad I remember that now, because now I was able to pull it up. So now I've got it. Uh, I've got an aide de memoir that's going to help me make sure we keep this clean. So um, there's kind of, there's, there's basically two roles, I want to say, we'll call them roles that get rights to a song. The first one is what Kim said, the author, the songwriter. Okay. And the songwriter's bundle of rights that they get and ability to collect royalties is, is the most significant one. Um, and often they will give up those rights, part of them. The person that writes the song will usually give up some or all of those rights. Like the Beatles gave up all of their songwriting rights, gave them to the publisher. The Michael Jackson bottom later. Right. Paul McCartney doesn't own the rights to Hey Jude. And he's no. never, as far as I'm aware, he's never even bought them back because now they're like so expensive. He's like, uh, couldn't be bothered. 
they learned a hard lesson. Like they got screwed by their, on the business side. If you didn't know that it's pretty common knowledge that the Beatles got screwed anyways. So the I feel songwriter, like he's doing okay though. Right. Like Macca? Yeah. Mac is fine. Come on. Yeah. Like we don't need to do a GoFundMe or anything for him. He's no, for he's okay. Sir, Sir Paul <laughs> I, I think he's fine. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> Yoko, though, could be really a lot more rich than she is. Uh, I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Anyways, mm-hmm. so the way that they usually give up a lot of those rights is by um, ha- by signing a contract with a publishing house or a publisher. So whenever when you're t- when you hear the term publisher, are you talking about publishers getting royalties? that can be confusing because you can think like, Oh, a publisher gets rights. A publisher does not get rights. A publisher gets a piece of the songwriting royalties. They get it. They get some of the rights of the songwriter. And usually it'll be some percentage. It'll be like, you know, a 50, 50 split or, or whatever. So those are the songwriter copyrights. Sorry, just to clarify that. So you could sell just half of your songwriting, assign half of your songwriting rights to a publisher and keep half. So yeah, you can do whatever you want. Okay. And those rights exist the moment you create the work and they call them works. The moment you create the work, you own the rights to that work. Okay. Now it can be difficult to prove that sometimes. And so, you know, we get these lawsuits about like Stairway to Heaven. There was a big lawsuit about Stairway to Heaven. I think Led Zeppelin won in the end. But, um, you know, and then the question comes like, okay, like, did you write it or did you did you steal it from somebody else's original work? And um, I, I don't know all of that, all of like the, the, the thresholds and the standards that they use in different jurisdictions to like decide those types of cases. Right. But um, for the United States, and this is an important nugget because, um, you know, there's such a huge market for the music industry and up here in Canada, often you'll have your stuff in the United States as well. For the United States, if you register your work under their, whatever their copyright act is called, then um, it's a, it goes a lot better for you if you have to litigate and there's presumptions in your favor. So in Canada, there's not the same kind of incentive to register your copyright. You don't have to register it. And whether or not you register it, even in the U.S., whether or not you register it doesn't change the fact that you own it. So if you write a song, that's your song. You own it. You own the rights to it. You don't have to register it with anybody. Registering it is helpful as a piece of evidence. It's not determinative, but it, it can be helpful. Gotcha. You know, like if you wrote a song, Heather, in uh, 1995, in the throes of your early life, mm-hmm. and uh, you registered it in 1995, and, and then um, Ed Sheeran wrote basically the same song, very suspiciously sounds just like your song you wrote in right. yeah. and he registers his copyright and it's like 2018. It doesn't matter if he independently thought of exactly the same song. You thought of it first, it's yours. You win. I see. Okay. So that would be pretty compelling, right? Because I don't mm-hmm. even know if Ed Sheeran was alive in 1995. Okay. Well, we don't need to rub that in, but okay. <laughs> I was. I was alive in 1995. <laughs> 
And Anyways. presumably it works the other way as well. So if I registered in 1995, but um, Kim came along and had a video of her playing the song in her basement in 1990 or something, um, then... Well, it gets kind of tricky, Heather, because the date you register, it doesn't, like, can be helpful. Mm-hmm. This is what I mean about it's not necessarily determinative. And I don't want to speak too much about this because like I do not do litigation about songwriting. So not the best one, but the way that I understand it is Mm -hmm. like I could right now go on, register my work. um, Because none of my works are registered. So I could go register my works. I wrote some of them in the Mm nineties, but I would register that if I registered them, it would be registering them now in 2022. Right. But, um, you know, I wrote it a long time ago. So, Mm. um, yeah, anyways, that's what the registry is there just to be helpful, but it's uh, a lot of people don't register their works. Mm. Okay. It's kind of blowing my mind actually, because it's like, there's so many different kinds of art as well. So there's like a song which can be reproduced and it can be not only like that instance of it being played, but it can also be replayed by someone else or sung by someone else. Books can be reproduced, but there's one of a kind pieces of art. Anyway, I wow, my brain is really, there's a lot of stuff going on here that is possible. We're really scratching the surface. We're not getting into books. We're not going to get into that. Yeah. Music. (laughs) And that's confusing enough. Yes. Okay. So we have the author role. That's the person who writes. Let's let's call him a songwriter. The songwriter. Okay. Obviously, songwriting is the musical composition. And the lyrics, if any, right? And so that's, you know, yeah. So there's lots of ways you can split that up. And, and like, there's no set rules about that. It's, it's when a work is created, there's this bundle of rights that attach to that work. And the person that owns the work, that created the work, owns the work. And if multiple people created it, then it's going to be most clear if they have a contractual relationship saying who owns what. Okay, so that, there's songwriter. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I've got a, a point on that. Is it important then to avoid fights in the future, like a divorce in music? Is it important then if you are creating music with a band or a group of people? Like, let's say you've got a garage band, you're a bunch of 17 year old kids, you create this like banger and you don't, uh, you know, claim your piece of that song. Is that a big mistake that parents are making? Not bringing their kids to a lawyer and saying, hey, this is, can we talk about this? Well, I don't know that a lawyer needs to be involved per se, Kim, but um, yes, yes. If you participate in creating a song, you should make, you should get something in writing just to be clear. And it's best if you do that, if you establish that beforehand to the extent that it's possible. Um, Yeah. These types of, these types of things, it's better to have things clear. And so if you're in a band, you guys should negotiate songwriting credits like for example there's two uh, two bands that i like a lot that i think are good examples of ways to deal with this u2 and the smashing pumpkins the smashing pumpkins who are having this revival right now um part of what i wasn't in the band okay but what i understand from reading interviews and, and such part of what like destroyed that band besides drug use was 
songwriting credits. So Billy Corgan wrote all the songs, kept all the songwriting um, uh, rights, okay. copyrights, okay. and made a ton of money the other band members did not make. So there's this great inequality um, as far as getting paid. Um, now, they had rights, too, because they performed on the records, and we'll get to that next. But Billy Corgan made a lot more money than his bandmates, and I think that that's part of the thing. That's one of like the things that stirred up jealousy, and, and they had all kinds of issues. It wasn't, it's not that simple, but that didn't help. That does not help band morale when uh, lead singer is getting paid millions on this hit song, and you're making thousands when you go on tour. So what could kids do to protect themselves uh, if, if they don't have the money to go to a lawyer? Do they write, scribble on a piece of paper what they've done and sign it? Do they video themselves working on songs or performing those songs? What's, what's some little things that people can do that might help them in the future? Anything in writing is going to be better than nothing, Kim, but like the devil's in the details. Like if you're going to write a contract, it, there's certain things that need to happen in order for that to be a contract. And so I don't really want to get into details about contract law here per se. It's a bit of a sidetrack, but you got to make sure that it is actually a legally binding contract. And just because it's written down doesn't make it a contract. In fact, it doesn't need to be written down in order for it to be a contract. It, verbal contracts are still contracts. The other elements, there's other elements that make it a contract. So you have to be... Well, I guess I am going to talk a little bit about contract. <laughs> yeah, you have to be, uh, uh, the parties have to be ad idem, which if I remember law school Latin properly, it's when, that you're of the same mind. In other words, you come to, an, there's a meeting of the minds. You agree on what it is that you're agreeing on. There has to be consideration which usually is in the form of some kind of compensation. Somebody is giving up something um, and it makes sense with the rights that the other person is getting or the rights that that person is getting if they're giving something up. So there has to be some kind of consideration and that doesn't have to be money, right? In songwriting contract, it could be whatever you're, you know, you're giving up the opportunity to take all of the, the royalties um, but in return, you're getting help writing the song. And so as long as that's worded properly, that could be valid consideration, I would think. Um, so obviously writing, having it in writing really makes, really can help to indicate that the parties are on the same page, pun intended. Hmm. And do they have to write it out in handwriting? Can it be typed out and signed? Uh, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay. Like I said, it can be verbal. It's still binding. Writing, writing is better because it's easier than for everyone to point at this document and say, here's what we wanted. But, you know, lawyers are better at this kind of thing because, you know, we see contracts. So we turn our, you know, we've got the writing locked down in a way that you probably don't if you're just thinking it up off the top of your head. So I have a, bit, a question for you, just kind of following up on the Smashing Pumpkins example and knowing that you've sort oh, yeah, of... I didn't, say, I didn't say the other band. Oh, right. You too. I didn't get into that one, but we'll no, get into that. You Don't let me forget. Yeah, okay. We can come back okay, to Heather, that. Okay, Heather, go. Um, I've 
well, I'm not going to talk about my personal experience of hanging around with bands and garages when I was a young person, but I don't recall anyone ever talking about any sort of songwriting ownership or anything. So is this something that as a band people do discuss as they're writing songs and working on things? Well, um, once they sort of hit a certain level or um, when they're putting together, uh, what do they even call them? I don't even the albums anymore. I don't know. I'm out of the loop. <laughs> Good question. I didn't know you were hanging out with Nickelback back in the day. But <laughs> oh, they're, they're not your speed. They're an Edmonton band originally. Anyways, um, so well, I think there's a change. I think it, things have changed because when I was writing songs as a teenager in the nineties, it was so hard to record those songs. It was really hard. You had to pay a bunch of money to go to some crappy studio. So to get into a nice studio, it was really expensive. It was quite prohibitive to, to create and produce your own music. Um, now it's like so easy. Right. It, it's like, it's the technology, the digital technology has transformed that industry in such a way that anybody can create high quality, like, as far as the audio goes, music, that was not possible in the 90s. It was really hard to, to do that and, and expensive. So, and all the specialized equipment that was difficult to use and to know what you like, it's just so much easier now. And I think that has contributed to musicians being more business savvy. Like it's uncool to talk about the business side of music. I think that was kind of the attitude of some some bands and, um, and things now keep in mind, like 50% of zero is still zero. So right. what I mean by that is like, I've been paid about $50 total in royalties for my music. And I have a lot of songs and they've been available for a long time. Right. And I think they're pretty good. <laughs> but uh you, you know it's to 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 like make some serious money so where it would actually matter whatever agreement you might have most of the time doesn't materialize and so the band practicing in the garage might not want to get hung up on that but it's something to be aware of like if you're serious about music you can make a living at it there's tools out there that can help you be successful anybody without touring with touring tools for all that to be an independent musician now and to have a legitimate business. So I think if you are an independent musician, what, and what I mean by that is you're not hired by one of the major labels um, or any label, I guess um, then yeah, you should be thinking about this stuff so that you're, you're kind of set up properly so that when you, if you're not making that much money, at least you know where that money's going properly. Mm. So I think what I'm kind of gleaning from that is like, if you're just playing guitar in the garage with your buddies, this isn't probably something to get worked up about. But if you start booking gigs and you're starting to make some money and maybe staring down the brink of being successful, that might be the time to put some time and attention towards these things and maybe start getting some of it yeah. written down or some agreements or discussions in place. Is, is that well, I, you know right? how like, you know, how like people, market things to lawyers. And if it's marketed to lawyers, it's always more expensive. Mm -hmm. 
there's a lot of people out there preying on musicians um, because like there's all this emotion caught up in being a musician. And so they'll prey on your, your dreams and basically, and mm. there's lots of people willing to make money off of you when you're not even making music that's any good. Mm. So um, I would say beware of, of paying for services but, and, and I'm not, I don't want to be one of those people contributing to that where like, oh yeah, like if you're a musician, you need to go see a lawyer. Cause I don't think that's true. Most of the time, unfortunately, uh-huh. you're probably not going to make any money, especially in Canada. But if it is something you're serious about and you're going to start a business, if you're going to be a musician that you, and you're going to make money, that's a business, then you should get your ducks in a row and you should get a lawyer and sort that stuff out. And the sooner, the better. Right. The sooner you have that songwriting stuff sorted out, the better. Then it's not an issue moving forward. If you already have a song out there. So it's so easy to release a song now, Heather. Like you can, you can write a song, you can record it and it can be on Spotify in days. Right. That whole process can take like days and now it's released out there to the world and anyone can stream it. And so if you have, uh, you know, it's theoretically possible you get a fluke and they, the song is like super good and just gets picked up by the algorithm and ends up on people's uh, discover weekly or whatever on Spotify. And then they really love it. And, and, you know, theoretically something like this could happen to somebody that nobody knows about. And all of a sudden there could be a bunch of revenue coming in for that. And so if that's a bad time to figure it out is all I'm saying. Mm. So that's a really long way to, to say, uh, you know, within reason, figure it out sooner rather than later, but don't break the bank. Right. To do it. Right. Okay. Okay. You so, too. Oh, right. You too. Yes. You too decided very early on that they were just going to have every, every member of the band was getting a quarter of the songwriting credits, period. Didn't matter who wrote it. They were just going to split them four ways. U2 has never come close to breaking up as far as we're really aware. I mean, maybe after Rattle and Hum before Octung Baby, perhaps. And then, you know, Adam was an alcoholic. Well, I guess he's still an alcoholic, but he was in pretty rough shape in the early 90s. Like maybe those few things, but not really. The band really stuck together. And I think they attribute it to at least partly to that. Like that's their mentality that we are a band. Everyone's equally contributes though differently kind of like access to justice, um, as a team. And, and they weren't going to just give Bono and the edge Bono and the edge, all the money for the songwriting. They, they all share it equally. So, you know, I think that's, and I wouldn't be surprised if right now Billy Corgan is, is sharing those songwriting credits with the other band members a little more liberally than he did in the nineties. I think he's learned his lesson that that, May have made him a lot of money, but wrecked the band. Hmm. Is he also running a tea shop or a donut? Yeah, Zuzu, Madam tea Zuzu's. It's a tea shop. Yeah, okay. Tea shop. Yeah, <laughs> he's doing this podcast right now. Very interesting because it's um, it's a I think it's a really interesting model, and it's on topic for this. It's a really interesting model for musicians like he does each episode is a song on this new album. He's doing this concept album that is really a continuation of melancholy and infinite sadness. And, um, 
Machina. Those two were concept albums and nobody knew they were concept albums because <laughs> they didn't tell anybody and didn't tell anyone what the backstory was. And so now this new album is like a continuation. It's like part three of this, this arc, I guess. And it's kind of crazy and, and not at all what I would have expected from him. And every episode he gives like the backstory of like this, where this music comes from. And it's like, kind of like a rock opera. It's not an, a rock opera, but like, it's, he's got a whole story behind, behind all these songs. And it's, so it's interesting. Like I'm not really enjoying the new album. I'm not really loving the new songs, but um, it's just, it's an interesting way to get the art out there. Huh. Um, yeah. Huh. Okay. Did you have another question? Cause I wanted to talk about get into what this means, like how this translates into dollars in the bank account. But if you have another question, we can do that first. No, I just wanted to scoop up what role number two was. So we have author slash songwriter is role number one. What's role number two that yes. gives you rights you to that. a song or a work? I'm going to say there's actually, there's actually three roles. I'm going to contradict myself. I said okay. two, but there, but there's really three <laughs> because, um, Number two is performer rights, specifically performance on a recording. There are rights associated with that. So anyone who performs on a, on a recording, there are royalties for that. And the other one is the master owner or, and master is just referring to the olden days when you created a master that was used to stamp vinyl and then later duplicate onto tapes and CDs. So the person that owns the sound recording. And so those could all be, there could be a whole bunch of different people lumped into those three roles. There could be tons. Right. Um, but, you know, for me, I own all of those things and I still only made about 50 bucks so far. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Also so, performer and master. And yeah. Okay. So let's talk, let's talk a little bit about who, like how people get paid in those, those different things. So the songwriter, yeah. songwriter copyrights are the most expansive. You get the most opportunity to make money from that because first you get public performance royalties. Public performance royalties is anytime a song that you write is performed in public. So it can be performed by the recording being played. It can be performed by you performing it at a pub or wherever. And it can be performed by a cover band, somebody covering your song. Any of those would get you a royalty for the, being the songwriter. And the way that that happens is the venue is responsible. So the venue where that's, that is played, generally speaking, it might be different if like the venue is, is like Roger's place or something. I don't know. I don't know about that, but if the venue is like a bar, the, that venue, um, pays royalties, pays performance royalties to SoCan. SoCan is it's, this is an important thing to, to bring up now. SoCan is a performance rights organization in Canada or pro PRO there. And they are the performance rights organization for songwriters. So can, which stands for the society of composers, authors, and music publishers of Canada. 
SOCAN. So, um, SOCAN, basically, you register your work with SOCAN, and when a song gets played somewhere by somebody, whether it's a radio station or um, a bar playing it on their own or whatever, they're supposed to report that they played that song to SOCAN, and, and they have to pay... And they pay, I think you can get like, um, they have diff like different programs where you can just pay a flat fee to SoCan every, every month for just playing songs through your business hours. And then you just, as you, they, you tell them what you play, um, then they pay royalties. How does karaoke fit into that and, and TV programs where people are doing cover songs like America's whatever America's talent. <laughs> yeah. Good. Great questions, Kim, because it does get like, you can see how it can get quite complicated pretty quickly. So, um, for songwriter, uh, royalties, when it's a, somebody else is going to record your song. So this would be karaoke. So somebody else is recording the song and they're not recording the lead vocal. Anytime somebody records the song, they have to pay a mechanical royalty to the songwriter. The mechanic it's called a mechanical royalty because it used to be like the act of putting that song on a mechanical medium, like a record or an eight track or whatever. Now that it's, um, the amount of royalty that's paid for each reproduction set out in the copyright act and regulations. And that is not administered by SOCAN. Mechanical royalties are administered by the Canadian Musical Reproduction Rights Agency Limited or SIMRA. So they are, uh, they are the pro that collects the royalties on behalf of the songwriter, mechanical royalties. And SIMRA comes up later too. They do other things too. SOCAN collects most of the royalties, but not mechanical royalties for songwriters. The other one you said was, okay, what about like on a video? That's called sync licensing. Um, again, the songwriter, anytime their song, whether it's performed by them or somebody else, anytime their song appears on a, on a video of some kind, whether that's a movie or a TV show or YouTube or whatever, they have an entitlement to be compensated for that. You can't do it without their permission, but there's no, that is not covered by the, the copyright act. So it's, it's negotiated like each time. Okay. There's a whole cottage industry about sync licensing. Mm, this answers a question maybe that I had for you then I was gonna I, I wanted you to get through them all I just recently watched a documentary about Sinead O'Connor and of course Prince wrote her hit song nothing compares to you um but they played a whole bunch of her songs but they didn't play that one and they said the that the Prince estate wouldn't give permission for them to play the song and I was left with this question I thought how can that be? Because she performed that song. Like I get that he wrote it, but doesn't she own her performance of that song and yeah, can't so, give permission to play it in her own 
um, documentary. So maybe yeah. you can, I don't know if, I don't know yeah. if you can answer that question. I can't, I can't. So, okay. I mean, I don't know specifically for that song, but yeah. we know for sure Sinead O'Connor performed yeah. on that recording. And so as a performer, at least she would have had rights. She may have signed those rights away to the record label or not. She may have kept those rights, but she would be entitled to royalties anytime that recording is played, but she does not own the songwriting. She didn't, unless Prince gave her some of the songwriting rights. She never got the songwriting rights. Prince kept those. So he owns the songwriting rights and he, the songwriter alone is the one who gets compensated for sync licensing for when a, when a song is so is, is synced with video. That's why I call it sync license. It's like you're syncing it with a video. Um, and, and she might not the even... one who can give permission then That's as right. well. That's I'm right. assuming then. Yeah. Okay. The person that owns the recording doesn't even get a say or get compensated. Could she have performed the song on the documentary? No, I guess not, because that's in the song and it's on a video. And That's right. If it syncs to video, the songwriter has to give permission. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah, it's a one-off thing. There's no like set thing. But like I said, there's a cottage industry. So there are a bunch of agencies that collect libraries of songs and they sign contracts where they're only either they're taking no, um, they're taking nothing from the songwriter as far as rights. They're not taking zero percentage. Then they're doing it on like a, a monthly fee basis where like you can pay them X per month and they'll shop your catalog around. Okay. That's not a great deal if you don't have a catalog if that's that anybody knows about because where's their incentive to get your songs placed? Right. And then you're just paying them money. But Prince's, <laughs> Prince's so Prince, yeah, is look, probably Prince pretty is, well. <laughs> Prince is different, right? Like yeah. all the yeah. known ones is going to be different, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of agencies out there that have catalogs. Mm-hmm and have a piece of those songwriting publishing rights. And then they would go and negotiate on behalf of the artist to get a song placed for the songwriter mm-hmm. and then um, negotiate that fee and pay the songwriter right. cut, like most of it. And they take a cut. That's usually how that kind of works. So there's a whole industry about that. So people that are making videos want to use music and they know they can't just use just any music because um, they'd be infringing on copyright. That's mm-hmm. why you get videos taken down from YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's also why if people have negotiated with YouTube, it's also why not everyone, um, that doesn't happen very much anymore just for songs, unless it is somebody like Prince that doesn't have an agreement with, with YouTube. I have an agreement with YouTube. Anyone can use my song on YouTube and they'll get charged. Um, so any advertising revenue that that's on there that's because of ads being played while they're before their video or whatever, I would get a piece of that because it's, it's just been negotiated and it's like, you know, my music isn't worth a ton of money. So I'm okay with like taking a few pennies or whatever it is. Anytime somebody uh, uses my song in a video and it gets streamed um, and they have technology to like basically takes the thought the, um, the distinct signature of your song and they can, you know, artificial intelligence finds any video that's playing your song. So I've put videos. So example, for example, my song is our lead in Uh and 
a different song is the outgoing. Anytime somebody plays one of these songs, I get royalties. Oh. Any, any, sorry, anytime somebody plays our, one of our videos, I, I get royalties for that. Oh. Both those songs. Heather and I are not paying you for the for the song at this moment. I you yeah, and you won't you won't have to. Do we get co-songwriter credit though? I think we have to have a negotiation after this episode. I think we're gonna have to... <laughs> it's, it's, it's all from ad revenue from YouTube. That's how they deal. Because they had an issue, they had a crisis. Because they were like faced with what do we do? And then like if you played a cover of a song, that also would give rise to um, the songwriter has rights to that. Right. And should get reimbursed for that. and should get paid for it. Yeah, so you kind of like, you kind of aren't right for like the more complicated ones right off the bat, but that's okay. Sorry. Sorry. What were you going to ask? Kind of plucking the ones that I've seen recently out of the air. There's all these songs that you hear over and over again on TikTok. So with the owner of that song, sell it to an agency and then collect money that way. Is that what you were describing before? That's also a good question. It, it kind of goes along with um, streaming, but it's, you're right. It's different because it's not quite streaming. It is being synced to video. And so, yeah, basically TikTok would have uh, negotiated with people that own libraries of songs. And those are the songs that are made available on TikTok to use. You can't just use just any song on TikTok. It has to be in the library. So to give you an idea of how that works for somebody like me who um, just does music as a hobby and kind of throws it out there. The there's a lot of companies out there that will publish your music for you without taking a, uh, without taking a big chunk of your songwriting credits. And sometimes they won't take any chunk. They'll just charge you for doing it uh, and won't take any of the rights. And so uh, I've used CD baby, for example, they're really good. They're probably the most, um, robust in their um administration of rights on, in favor of the artists like you can they they kind of they take care of youtube facebook uh tiktok as well as all of the streaming services you could ever think of there's tons of streaming services i've never even heard of that anyone i've done through cd baby they administer it and um collect royalties from those so that's, that's how you do it. Like I'm not negotiating directly with YouTube or any of these people. It's uh, done through the, the agency that basically sell as a service, the ability to publish through them. Ingrid Michelson uses CD baby. If you've heard of Ingrid Michelson, she's one of their poster child's children's. You've never heard of Ingrid Michelson? No. Heather. Wow. I don't, is it TikTok related? I'm not a... No, she's just, she's an independent artist. Oh. Uh, that's quite, quite famous. <laughs> so, like, have you heard of, do you know who Jason Mraz is? <laughs> Kim's nodding at all the, uh, no. Sarah, Sarah Borelli's. They're like easy listening kind of music. Yeah, they're, they're artists that my wife loves. All three of those she's big fans of, especially Cerberellis. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Regardless. So, okay. So songwriter has all these rights. They get public performance royalties anytime somebody performs their song publicly, whether that's from a recording or doing it live. They get mechanical royalties anytime somebody records that song 
and releases it as an MP3 or a CD or whatever. And the way that that usually has ha happened, the way that it's usually done. Yes, Heather. Does a songwriter have to give permission for someone to record their song? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, not, not really, but to release the recording and to let anybody hear the recording. Yes. You've got to get permission. And so the way that usually happens. Like and you have to pay. So I couldn't record nothing compares to you and release it. I would have to get permission from the Prince estate. Yeah. Even, but the way that happens is yeah. different because if you remember, oh. I said mechanical royalties are, they're handled by like those are already contemplated in the act in Canada and the U S. Ah, okay. And so okay. it's just a matter of making sure that the person gets paid. And so the way that usually works, like I, gotcha. I released the cover okay. of a old, um, Springfield Buffalo song. And so I paid X dollars to an agency that they're one of the, there's a few agencies that kind of handle this on behalf of people. So whoever holds those rights, usually it's a publishing company, but it could be like the estate. It might be more difficult. Prince, Prince's estate may grip that tightly and it may be impossible to get, but most of the time it's not that hard. It's really like a, an administrative exercise and you would pay X and that would give you the rights to 500 instances, right? So like if you're going to press 500 CDs and sell those, then that would be the fee. You'd pay some fee like, and it's like pennies, or a fraction of that. I can't remember what it is, It's but it's set out by law. It's X per instance for, for a given song. And so if you're going to press like a, a hundred thousand of those, you know, that adds up of course. And it doesn't matter if you sell them or not, you have to pay that royalty up front when you produce the copy. And that applies to MP3s as well, but that's a little bit more difficult because if you're selling MP3s on like Apple music, uh, and if you're streaming as well, I'm pretty sure there's mechanical royalties, even for streaming. Hmm. Um, at least there was when I, I, I purchased for this song, but it's a lot less per stream. So those count for all that. The mechanical royalties have to be, um, paid for all that, or you're doing it in an unauthorized way. And so when you're releasing it with somebody who's not like a record label and not taking care of all this stuff for you. So you're doing it through CD baby, or you're doing it through whoever, um, you know, you have to take care of that and provide them with proof that you've done that. And then they'll, before they'll put it out, because otherwise they can be liable for infringing on that copyright. Um, okay. And we already talked about sync licensing. And then the making available rights is one way to talk about this, the streaming rights. So it's a little bit different than mechanicals. I kind of lumped it in together because I think they're dealt with kind of in the same way using the same agencies, but um, yeah, it's, there's, um, these are not, the making available rights generally are not um, the statute hasn't caught up with the reality of technology yet. And so 
being able to stream it whenever you want on Spotify, it hasn't been dealt with. And so there's kind of these one off and different streaming platforms pay different amounts. And there's large publishers, right? Like uh, Warner brothers will have their publishing arm that owns like a huge catalog. And so they can negotiate and have negotiated um, a particular rate for their library that obviously Apple and Spotify and whoever else want. And so right. they'll pay that higher amount. So that's the making available rights. Um, yeah. So those are the songwriter rights and the ways that they would get paid. So there's no set, um, there's no set statutory body that collects, um, royalties for making available rights or sync licensing or, um, but there are for mechanical royalties and, and public performance royalties. It's SOCAN for public performance and it's SIMRA for mechanical royalties. Okay. But sync licensing and making available rights are usually going to be taken care of by whoever you have as that's helping you publish, whether that's an actual publishing company, which also would then take a percentage of your songwriting uh, credits or, um, another company that offers that as a service and you pay for that service upfront. Any other questions about songwriter specifically royalties? So there's an evolution that we've been part of cause we're old. So Napster was the original place where I think we were taking music from and it sort of evolved over different channels over time for people like me who are not, uh, you know, integrated in the music community very much. I've heard of bands not wanting to be on those, those streaming services because they don't get paid enough to do it. And I'm wondering if that is because of the negotiations haven't gone well for royalties. Um, where, why wouldn't they want to be out there? Cause where else would they be? Uh, I'm just wondering what your take mm. is on that, Evan and, and, you know, where most bands have settled. I'm so glad you asked that question because I didn't understand this. I didn't grasp this fully until well, at first. And I, in fact, um, I, in fact, have like a YouTube video out there where I'm like ranting about the low royalties. But the reason what I misunderstood and what bands are misunderstanding when they're taking that stance, certainly it's not a lot of money. It's 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 pennies or fractions of a penny per stream. But that is more like a radio play than buying a CD. And so if they're comparing it to royalties you get if you sold a CD, which are quite high. Like if you sell a physical medium thing, it's costing between 10 and 20 or 20 bucks or more. And the artist would be getting probably in the realm of 60% or more of that, depending on what kind of deal they, they have with the distributor and their record label and stuff, they're getting a chunk of money from that. And so it's, they're making good money, but they don't get paid every time you play the song once you buy the medium. Right. So that's the trade-off. Right. So if you think about like, I bought, um, you know, the album war by U2 and it cost me U2 CDs were really expensive. I don't know if you remember that, but their, their CDs were always 20 bucks. Anyways, so I paid 20 bucks for it. I've listened to those songs so many times. I guarantee you it's less than, it's like such a small fraction of a penny per listen for those songs. 
but I mean, now they get more because now I'm paying for Spotify and they get, anytime I listen to those songs, they get another fraction of a penny. So it's the right way to look at it. Kim, I think is to compare it more to, to if you're comparing to album sales, it's like the lifetime of listens you get, to, there's no ceiling, right? We're on album sales. There is a ceiling. You sell it once. And radio plays did not pay that much, not pay that much in royalties per play. So, um, yeah, you're not getting, you're not getting a ton. Whereas if you sold an MP3 on iTunes, for example, you're getting a good chunk of that. But when you're, when you, when somebody streams your songs, you're not getting paid very much, but, um, yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think necessarily it's unfair. Um, like people are paying like 10 to $15 a month for a monthly subscription, and how many songs I listen to that month. Right. And if you divide 10 or 15 by the number of songs, like, and Spotify or whoever's administering it obviously should get a, uh, a cut of that. And they need a cut of that in order to survive and to keep providing the service. I mean, you can see really quickly why like mathematically it's going to be a fraction of a cent. And if you're going to expect people to pay more than 10 to $15 a month, like, there is a threshold. There is a maximum of what people will pay. Right. So kind of the math is what it is. So the subscription folks are hedging that we aren't going to listen to as many songs as the pennies it takes to pay for the songs we listen to. I think, I don't know all of the details about how that works exactly, but I, I believe that, um, the amount of royalties they pay out is related to the plays and is related to the person that plays what they're paying for. And I don't think it's a one-to-one -one relation because obviously Spotify who I don't even think are profitable yet, <laughs> but uh, you know, they need to take money in order to run their business out of that cut of the subscription fees, as well as the advertising revenue for like the free streaming people. But yeah, it's going to be the free streams. I know Spotify pays less for the free streams, but they still pay because they, you know, from the ad revenue, I guess. But I think I'm pretty sure it's related to what the listeners are paying. Okay. Whoever's okay. Gotcha. And it's, it's kind of the wild west. Like I think that's, I'm pretty sure that's how Spotify does it. Apple music pays higher royalties. And so they do it their way. And there's a thing called Deezer. That's more in France and Europe. Um, they do it differently or, or may have negotiated different deals or whatever. So all these different streaming services are not going to be the same as Spotify. Mm. Spotify is just the biggest one. Mm. Um, I don't know if now is the right time to ask this question, but um, we talked sort of about estates and that Prince's estate got, uh, apparently assumed the songwriting rights from Prince after he passed away. Do these songwriting uh, rights ever run out? Like, can I play a Bach song without <laughs> without paying songwriter uh, royalties to someone? I think no, I've heard you have of, like pay. Creative yep. Commons, or at some point the the copyright runs out. I've heard people say that before. Is that correct? You have to pay Bach's great 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 grandson or grandnephew or whoever's left living in charge of the state. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. Of course they, they do run out. There's a time limit. 
I don't know off the top of my head what it is. I think it's um, 50 years after the person dies that songs end up in the um, public domain. Public domain, that's it. Okay. Um, and so, but and what that means is there's no songwriter royalty paid for that song after they're in the public domain. So I, I just released this really weird recording of Handel's Messiah from part one of Handel's Messiah. That's all in the public domain. So I'm not getting any royalties, any songwriting royalties. Cause I didn't write those songs, but uh-huh. Handel and his, whoever his descendants are, are also not getting any royalties for that. The only royalties that are being paid then are royalties that are payable for the, the um, owner of the sound recording, which is me. And for the person that performed on them, which is me and a few other people, but I'm taking all those. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about um, if you look up performance, um, what did I call them? What did I call SOCAN? Performance rights organizations in Canada. There are a bunch of them. And so it's quite confusing. I want to talk, touch on that a little bit. And part of the way I'm going to do that is by talking about those other people, those other roles that have bundles of rights. So the, the performer copyrights, the person that performs part of a sound recording is the performer. So if you play the tambourine, if you play the cowbell on don't fear the reaper, then you are a performer on that recording. And so you would, there's rights associated with that. Now, this is where it gets, it, it, it's not the case that everyone that's playing something on a recording has a um, performer right. Cause usually they sign it away. Right. So if you're a session musician, you're getting paid for that session. So instead of getting this ongoing right to receive royalties, you're getting cash up front. You don't care how the song does. You're just, you, that's your gig. You're getting paid. You play on it. You no longer own that performance whoever paid you owns that performance. Um, but that right still exists. So somebody owns it. And so um, they get public performance royalties as well, just like the songwriter. So when a song, when the recording is played live, the songwriter will get, or played in public, sorry, a, the songwriter will get a public performance royalty and the performers who still own that right to their performance or whoever owns the rights to the performance gets royalties as well. These, so the songwriter ones, that's done through SoCan. SoCan collects them. But for the performers, it's administered by ReSound, R-E colon sound. They're another performance right organization. Okay. Those are also set out by the Copyright Act, those, um, the tariffs. They call them tariffs in the act. Um. Yeah. So obviously that's just for the recording. Somebody does a cover of the song. It doesn't matter if they're copying your performance that you did on the recording that goes only the songwriter gets royalties for that kind of a public performance. The performer only gets royalties anytime their performance is actually played publicly. They also get making available rights too. So for streaming. And no change, like exactly the same way as a songwriter, how it's like unregulated and kind of the wild west. It's the same thing. 
Now, the last one is the sound recording rights. So the person that owns the recording, which traditionally would be the record label. They put up, uh, they put up uh, the money for it. They own the recording and they get to collect all the money whenever that recording is used. And so you get public performance rights. So, and those again are also collected by ReSound. So whenever something, whenever a recording is played publicly, theoretically three different tariffs are paid or three different royalties are paid the songwriter, the performers and the owner of the song, or sorry, the owner of the recording. The owner of the recording also gets mechanical royalties. So anytime that it's reproduced on a CD or vinyl or MP3, they get, um, they get that. And those, uh, are administered by connect all caps C O N N E C T. They collect mechanical royalties for the owner of the sound recording. So performers don't get a mechanical royalty, only the songwriter and the owner of the recording. And then uh, making available rights as well are paid to the owner of the recording. Okay. Now, I just want to say something about ReSound. So, so ReSound is has member organizations that work with them, and this makes things confusing. There's a bunch of them, and um, including Connect. I just mentioned Connect. They're a member organization of ReSound. Okay. There's also Actra, Actra Rex, which is I think is the Actra is the English acronym and RAX is the French acronym. Uh, I could be wrong though. And then the MROC, I think is a French one and Artistal. Those are all organizations that can administer royalties for performers. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why there are one, two, three organizations within ReSound, who's another organization that can do it directly, that all administer rights for performers. I don't. I don't have an answer for you. I think it's ludicrous and it makes it super confusing. I'm having such a difficult time imagining the bureaucracy that goes on behind the scenes to administer all of this. Like, do we, do we have towers of people that are working on the administration of music royalties? I, yeah. like, I don't know anybody who works in this area or who's ever worked in this area, but it must be massive to be tracking all of this. And I'm just, well, they've I'm, got a it little, down. They, I'm a little just in awe. <laughs> They, I don't think they're perfect at, like, they don't capture everything, of course. Oh, certainly not. Yeah, I, I'm Right, there's sure. people that break the law all the time. Like, anytime you, like, use your Spotify account to play music in public, you, you're, what you get for paying your, your, good. What you get for, for your Spotify membership is a right for personal use. You do not have the right to play that to, in public. And if you, because if you do that, technically you'd be triggering, you know, the law says you have to pay these um, royalties. Yeah. And, but you don't, you don't pay them for doing it. So it's like you're getting away with it 
so to speak. Mm -hmm. So like if you own a business and you just have your Spotify or like your YouTube going on the background, you're breaking the law. (laughs) If you get caught, you probably get some hefty fines. There's a right way to do it, which is you register with resound and so can, um, and you pay, you, you buy some membership where you're paying X amount every month in order to legally play the music that you're going to play at your place of business or whatever. Um, yeah. And FYI, as a side note, another service that resound and its member organizers organizations provide is collecting private copying royalties. Now you both may remember this people were losing their minds. Well, not people, we were pumped about it, but like the record industry was losing their minds when CDRs became a thing, the ability to re- to write your own CDs. Cause oh, yeah. tape to tape dubbing was happening a lot and people just kind of winked at it. They didn't really care. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you shouldn't be doing it. Cause you can't reproduce sound recordings. That's that's engaging the mechanical royalty without paying the mechanical royalty. Cause now you're like reproducing it onto another mechanical medium and you didn't pay the mechanical royalty. And so that's, that's why there's this issue of like tape to tape, high speed dubbing, but it was like, was okay. Good at that in junior high, go to the library. Yeah. Making some mixtapes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, they, they cared, but they didn't care that much because tape to tape dubbing, you lose quality every single time because tapes have a, have a, uh, high noise floor. It's like the base level of noise is high on a tape. You get tape hiss. And so every time the DJ was always talking over the songs and ruining them and well, if you're doing it from a radio, from a radio, that, then it's even worse because radios use all these compressions. So the song, like they like squish everything and make it louder for broadcast. So you're getting into like, yeah, the quality is dropping. So, um, but when it came possible to do CDR, you're getting a perfect digital copy of the song. Right. And so then they were like, God, this is the downfall of the music industry. It's going to destroy us. And so the, what they did to get around that was, um, if you buy a CDR still to this day in Canada, part of the price that you're paying for that CDR is this private copying royalty. That's oh, how they capture that. Interesting. So then okay. they're just like, yeah, people are going to do it. So, um, yeah. So, so can Simra and Sodrak <laughs> or the society for reproduction rights of authors, composers, and editors of Canada administer those royalties for songwriters, but CDRs are more and more irrelevant. So, you know, cause why would you even buy a CDR at this point? Cause it's a very niche market. Cause if you need writable media, you're probably getting a Blu-ray, a blank Blu-ray. Um, and you're storing data on it. You're not worried about, or like people are certainly pirating movies and using Blu-rays to do that, but not CDRs are kind of uh, useless these days. So let me kind of summarize because we talked about a lot of stuff and I want to like, and one of my goals was to make this not confusing. And I know the way we've meandered about it has been interesting. I hope you found it engaging, but like you may not have a clear picture of everything that we talked about. So I just want to kind of like back up, zoom out a little bit and provide like kind of a high level summary. 
Um, so basically there's, there's three bundles of rights, the songwriter bundle, the performer on a sound recording bundle and the owner of a sound recording bundle. Um, songwriter gets most of the opportunity to get paid, um, for one given song, I should say, because they get paid anytime that song is performed publicly, whether it's their recording or somebody else's recording or somebody's doing a cover, somebody's playing it live, they get a royalty. They get mechanical royalties anytime it's reproduced on a physical medium. They get sync licensing, which is negotiated kind of one-off anytime it's synchronized with video. And they get make available rights for streaming on Spotify and other like services. The performer bundle of rights is only exists when that sound recording that they performed on um, is used and it can be used for public performance. So if it's played live in public or played in public, the recording, they would be entitled to a, a royalty and making available rights as well when it's streamed. That's the only two ways the performer on our sound recording gets paid. They don't get paid for sync licensing. And then the owner of the sound recording, again, they get public performance rights. Anytime that sound recording is played in public, they get uh, royalties. They get mechanical royalties. Anytime that sound recording is manufactured, put on a physical medium or uh, made available in an MP3. And they get making available rights anytime that song is streamed on Spotify or like services. And so how do they all get paid for all these things? Some of those royalties are governed by legislation. Um, and there are performance rights organizations that collect those uh, royalties on their behalf. Uh, so can for songwriters and resound for performers and for um, owners of the sound recording. And that's about it. There's a whole bunch of other organizations that deal with performers for some reason. They're all members of ReSound. I don't know why. And uh, so can, as well as some ReSounds uh, and ReSound and Sodrak all collect royalties on CDRs. <laughs> Huh. So was that, was that succinct ish, uh, zoomed out summary, a little easier to understand. Yeah, I, I think it was, I guess I'm just, um, yeah, I'm really, um, I guess taken aback by the complexity of all this stuff that goes on behind the scenes of Spotify and being an artist or a, I guess a musician specifically. Um, and I guess like to your point early on in the episode, when you talked about the Beatles and that was, you know, decades ago in a really different technological, I guess, landscape, but it seems that there's like, this could be ripe with traps for the unwary as well. If, if um, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for an artist to get exploited. Um, oh, yeah. if, if they weren't careful or weren't there's, getting the right advice. And there's a history of exploited artists, uh -huh. right? Like, um, well, Prince, obviously, there was that whole thing about him getting out of his contract. I'm sure that had to do with royalties and all sorts of stuff, right? I don't really remember the details, but... <laughs> yeah, well, and Taylor Swift, not that I feel sorry for her, but 
she didn't like her deal with her original publisher or whatever, or the owner of her sound recordings, not publisher, the owner of the, of her earlier sound recordings. So she re-recorded all her albums. That's why she re-recorded all her albums. Well, I was going to ask that too. Like, has there ever been an instance where someone has been like, someone has retained a performer right or something for a recording and the songwriter says, okay, I'm just going to record it then without that drummer and, and shop that version around. I guess, I guess there is, that's an example there. Yeah. T-Swizzle did it, uh, not for that reason, because I bet you any of the musicians on there were session musicians Yeah. or the record label owned the sound recording. And I don't know what it, I don't know what the dispute was exactly about maybe she, she didn't like her contract with them or whatever, but they did not have, uh, I guess they didn't have a clause about being exclusive or maybe they did, but there was a time limit for, cause usually in recording contracts, there'll be like a time limit. You can't re-record the song. Um, right. And like avoid next that. years. Yeah. Right. And, and so maybe that time limit ran up or her contract ran up. Like, I don't know. Um, but clearly she wanted to have a different sound recording out there of those songs so that she could, uh, collect those royalties as well. Huh. Yeah. It, artists have been exploited. The ones that aren't exploited are notable for not being exploited. Like Tom Petty was, uh, is a good example of someone who like negotiated hard and got a fair deal. Huh. And you too, is also a notable exception. Their management really, um, looked out for them and made sure that they got a fair deal. And so they got tons of money mm -hmm. and um, you know, the Beatles are a good example. Somebody got totally screwed by management and, and whatever. And it, it started like the whole thing, the music industry is like based on uh, lies, deception and crime. <laughs> so okay. like, do, do you, are you aware of like the scandal of the pay to play scandal? And it's not like one thing. It's just like this ongoing thing. So radio stations were in the pocket of mobsters who owned record labels, like legitimate gangsters laundering money through record labels would pay radio stations to pay their play their artists, which okay. of course would, would fuel album sales, which would bring the money in 100% like crime syndicate stuff. Okay. Right. And then, um, in the United States, they, you know, this finally came to the attention of the government. They cracked down, they made these rules and they just found ways to get around the rules. And now with Spotify, even it's, it's happening too. And so there's like playlist curators and pay to get on those playlists. It's, it's like the same kind of thing. It's not the music industry. Surprise, surprise. It's not merit-based. You know, you're not hearing spins of songs on the radio because that's what you want to hear. It's because somebody's paying somebody to get that on the radio. Mm. Huh. Yeah. Well, that sadly, maybe it displays some cynicism on my part, but that doesn't surprise me as much as the, uh, as the bureaucracy <laughs> and uh, just all of the contracts and everything that must underlie all of this stuff just kind of boggles my mind. I just like close my eyes and imagine this spider web of rights and stuff flowing all over the place. So. I guess, I guess one thing I want to say, like, I, I hope, and I hope it doesn't sound too cynical for people out there who are like, 
writing songs and have dreams of, of having success because I, I definitely, as a musician, I would never want to crush somebody's dream about that. And I would say, I think now is an exciting time to be a content creator, whatever kind of content you're creating, whatever kind of art you're creating. I think it's a really exciting time because while there's always going to be this element of, you know, the man and evil conniving people keeping the good man down, um, there's still, I think if you are dedicated and it's something that you want to do, um, there are tools out there for, you know, anybody to have success and get their music heard. And, and, um, there's a website called Indiepreneur who that is their, their raison d'etre is providing resources to independent artists to sell their own albums and tour if that's what they want to do and, and marketing and how to market yourself. And like, they have like really awesome courses that they sell that kind of provide playbooks and like walk you through step-by-step step of how to do that type of thing. And they're just one example of, of a good resource that's out there made by musicians for musicians, people that are using their own product and having some measure of success success. And it doesn't mean that like, like success as a musician in today's world is not only selling um, a million albums. Like you can actually make decent money um, as a small business. And there's ways to do that. You're basically a small e-commerce business and you can make money selling your stuff, having merch and selling it. And like, just, but you have to, you know, you have to become a business person. You have to, you have to realize you're running a business, but I think it's an exciting time. And I think it's possible to do it and impossible to have a small piece of the pie that will enable you to do what you love doing um, and make a reasonable income from doing it. If you're smart about it and you have the time and, and, uh, to invest in it and you're passionate about it. I think it's, um, those weren't enough in the past time and passion were not necessarily enough, but I think today they really can get you into, um, you know, having some measure of success. Mm, mm. The internet's a great equalizer in a lot of ways, isn't it? And I think consumers also are a lot more aware of some of this stuff too, right? Like I think probably when the mobsters were (laughs) dictating what was played on the radio, those were different times. And I think people see like Tay Tay getting in a fight with Ticketmaster and like Pearl Jam's, you know, backlash against that beast, we mentioned Prince. Like, I think there's a lot of recognition of what's going on too. And people want to support bands directly and musicians and artists directly. So get out there and support a local musician. I heard another play, podcast. play the intro a few times to this, uh, <laughs> to, to this podcast and throw Evan a few pennies. <laughs> um, another podcast I listened to mentioned uh, a cool hack for making sure money gets into independent artists pockets. Uh, it's a meat eater podcast. Interestingly enough, I don't know why this, they were talking about this, but he said what he does, this guy, one of the guests on the podcast, he said what he does is he'll go to like, the band, if like there's a local band playing and he's like, and he'd be like, Hey, just put me on the guest list and, um, I'll buy some merch, you know, and I'll buy, what do you want me to buy? I'll buy like a t-shirt and a CD or whatever. And, um, cause that's going, 
the idea being that's going directly into the pocket, whereas they're going to lose part of the door. Right. So I thought that was interesting. So, you know, mm. that's one way you can support your local band and uh, get more value for your money because you get to see the show and you get the merch. There you go. Perfect. Yeah, well, that was a lot of talking. Um, I hope it was interesting. It definitely was, yeah. I hope it wasn't yeah. too confusing. I hope people followed us all the way down the garden path to the end to get kind of a more succinct uh, overview. Because like I said, I got to look it up every time. It's confusing. Yeah, it's definitely confusing, but I think you explained it well. And um, yeah, I feel like there's a few other things that we can maybe get into here a little bit too. So interesting, interesting well, stuff. <laughs> keep me in mind. I'm happy to come back anytime, Heather. All right, great. Well, <laughs> maybe next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thanks. Uh, I guess we're going to say bye from us here at Access to Justice. We'll see you next time. Bye and enjoy that outro. Any information in this video is general information only and is not nor is it intended to be legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFE, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the Dales dissipates, declines because of he who turns.